I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3 as we continue our series on Jesus' words to the church. Um, in this series, we're, we've been looking, or we're continuing to look at the first four chapters of the book of Revelation, and uh, this is the seventh week looking at the seven churches, the specific letters that Jesus dictated and that were delivered to each of these churches. Can you imagine getting a personal letter even to this church from Jesus? telling us what he sees in our hearts. You know, have you guys ever um, done something where you've needed help, you've been offered help, and your response is to say, ah, it's okay, I'm good. I think we all have. We fall down, we hurt ourselves, and we pop right back up, even though we know we're hurting, and we go, it's okay, I'm good. Or we... um, we tend to do that as believers too, don't we, sometimes? Uh, can I help you with something? No, it's okay, I'm good, I've got it. Or can I help you carry that burden? <clears throat> it's okay, I've got it, I don't even wanna share. Or can I help you with that addiction? No, it's all good, I can do it on my own, I'm good, thanks. It's kind of a smug attitude. A nominal believer might say, you know what, uh, I don't need church. I can do this on my own. I'm good. An older believer might say, you know, I've learned it all. I'm perfectly fine, fine, plus I'm tired. I'm good. Maybe that what we need to do is confess our sin of self-sufficiency. Abraham Lincoln, when he was president, declared uh, April 30th as a national humiliation a national day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And in part, this is what he wrote, it is the duty of nations as well as of men who owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions and humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. And to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. The awful calamity of civil war which now desolates the land may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins. To the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. And then he ends with this. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we Americans have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and persevering grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has grown. But we have forgotten God. This is what we need today. So let's read our passage, Revelation chapter three, follow along in your Bibles as we begin at verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. 
So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word to uh, us, to Claremont Emanuel this morning. So let's look at a city profile of Laodicea. Laodicea was the wealthiest city of the seven churches. Uh, When it was leveled by the earthquake that hit that area, uh, they took pride in being able to rebuild it without any help at all from Rome. Uh, The Roman government offered their help to rebuild it, but you know what they said? We're good. They were too proud to be able to say uh, they needed maybe a little bit of help, but they were very proud to say, you know what, we're so wealthy that we can handle this, and they turned down Caesar's money. Uh, Archaeologists have found a number of inscriptions in Laodicea that say, uh, I so-and-so restored this building at my own personal expense. They were proud of their autonomy. Uh, That same word describes us today, kind of, doesn't it? Autonomous. Uh, Says we don't need a thing. We're completely reliant on our own resources. Uh, Laodicea was an entertainment capital. Most of the cities have big stadiums, big uh, theaters, if you will. But Laodicea had two. That between them sat 20,000 people. And like most Cities, they had an athletic stadium, but theirs could fit three football fields inside of it. It was by far the largest of the seven churches. And on their coin was that same word, autonomous. It was a business hub uh, located just at the perfect spot, junction of major trade routes. It was a banking center. They mined, uh, minted their own money. They issued certificates if people wanted to store gold in a, in a safe place. And so it was like a precursor of our checking system almost. It was a textile center. They had this, these beautiful sheep with shiny wool uh, that provided soft wool for clothing that they made and manufactured. And it was a medical center, well known for uh, creating out of the ground an ointment that you would put in your eyes and that was uh, supposedly healing for the eyes. One downfall they had is that they had no adequate convenient source for water. We'll talk about that in just a bit. But so in responding to uh, the needs in particular of Laodicea, Jesus uses three titles to contrast himself with this half-hearted church at Laodicea. 
Those three titles are in verse 14, the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the ruler of God's creation. So first of all, Christ is the amen. The word amen is what we end our prayers with because we're saying, so be it. We want the truth of this prayer to, uh, to be firm. That's kind of another synonym. It's true. Uh, sometimes it's, it's paraphrased with just the word yes. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1, for every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, the amen is also spoken through him by us for God's glory. And this then would mean, and this is on your outline, that Jesus is the one whose words and promises are true beyond all doubt. He is the amen. He is the yes of all of God's promises. So Jesus is also the faithful and true witness. And this seems to be added almost to clarify the meaning of, of, this, of the first one, the amen, for those who were not Hebrew, those who were Gentiles. Uh, the non-Hebrew readers. And so together they mirror, and this is again on your outline, Christ's faithfulness to the apathetic Jew and Gentiles of that church. And this tells us what Christ says is without error, whatever he says is without deception, without exaggeration. What Jesus says is true. He is the faithful and true witness. And Jesus is the ruler of the creation of God. And this seems to be a clear reference back to what Paul said in Colossians 1 when when he wrote, he is the image, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So whether it be the creation or the church, Jesus is the Lord. He is the ruler. He is the chief. Uh, He is first in time and position. And this is exactly what the Laodiceans lost sight of or forgot. Who Jesus is, what he has done, what he will do. When we lose sight of Jesus, we become apathetic. One commentator explains the significance of this last title. It's on your outline. He says, for the sake of of this disastrous church, Jesus presents himself as the beginning, or more correctly, the origin of God's creation. The one who is able to go right down into the chaotic abyss of Laodicea's failure and make her anew, as he once made the world. In the meantime, Christ doesn't have a single word of commendation for this church. Laodicea is the only church that he has nothing good to say about. Their condition was critical, but it was not terminal. Christ has the medicine. He has the remedies for healing that if they have ears to hear, as it says in verse 22, and do what he says. So let's look then at the condition of this church. The Lord charged the Laodicean believers with three counts against them. The first one was that they were neither cold nor hot. It's on your outline. I know your deeds, verse 15, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Now, I've heard some say that what Jesus means is that he would rather you be cold and resist him or hot and on fire for him. Uh, I do not believe that's what this means. Jesus would never say to his church, be cold and oppose me. 
And so what we need to do is to interpret this statement against the historical and the geographical background of the city. So to the north was Aeropolis, and that was known uh, for its hot, healing waters. While Colossae to the east was known for their cold, refreshing water. Hot is useful. Cold is useful. Lukewarm is not useful. And so Jesus' point is something like this. You're providing neither hot water for healing the sick nor cold water to refresh the thirsty. So here's the lesson for us. We, we, and we can't be indifferent about looking at the condition of our own lives before God. Uh, continually taking inventory of our lives in light of the word of God. We've got to face up to our true condition before God. Jesus knows who we are. He knows what we're doing. So how did they get water to this city? Well, they built a six-mile aqueduct. They chose Heropolis, the, the city with the hot water. <clears throat> and by the time that hot water traveled the six miles through this aqueduct that they had built, uh, by the time it got to Laodicea, it had cooled to lukewarm. And that was the second count against them, like that water from, that came from Aeropolis, this is count number two, the church in Laodicea was lukewarm. So because you are lukewarm, verse 16, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. The word spit is literally vomit. You, you couldn't choose a better image to shock people uh, with, with the truth of where they were. Uh, can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? Yeah, you have friends. I, we've all heard people say, you make me sick. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you and meaning it? Wow. That's so humbling. Jesus was saying, you're lukewarm. And I will not tolerate that. If you do not repent, I will spit you out. I will vomit you out of my mouth. You badly represent the life-changing power of the gospel and the refreshment and the healing that it brings. The Laodiceans were lukewarm. They had a mediocre, middle-of-the-road faith that affected, impacted no one. They were like that warmish local water that unsuspecting visitors would taste, thinking it was going to be hot and healing, and, and they'd spit it out of their mouths. And such an apathetic religion led Jesus to be nauseous. The essence of lukewarmness is that you're satisfied with what you have. And you don't feel like you have any more growing to do. You don't feel like you need anybody to help you. It's like Starbucks. They serve cappuccinos and those are nice and hot. And they serve frappuccinos, ice cold. They do not serve tepid chinos. <laughs> so how do you tell if you're lukewarm? Well, one bit of evidence is that you use your faith to, to, to further your own self-serving agenda. Maybe you're a, a business person and you come here on Sundays, but then it's like you don't know what Christianity is during the week. It's like one author said, you're a Christian atheist. Or maybe you're a student and, and you come and you identify yourself as a Christian, but, but during the week you just blend in with all the other students. Nothing that sets you apart as a Christ follower. 
I, I'm lukewarm when I, when, when my, I, nothing about my faith is really supernatural anymore. When I don't pray because it's up to me to work and do something. I don't need to depend on God. I, I don't worship with passion because I don't see the point. Worship just doesn't connect for me. You ask yourself, is my love for God deepening? Is my compassion for the lost growing? And am I becoming more keenly aware of my own sin nature? When you're lukewarm, you value what the world values. You become the same as every other non-Christian. You have the same actions, the same values, the same thoughts. Room temperature water doesn't make an impact. It doesn't transform. It doesn't refresh. It doesn't heal. If a time of persecution is coming, the biggest danger to surviving it is lukewarmness. There's no substance to it. There's no usefulness. And then to make matters worse, the third count is that they were unaware of their actual condition. They weren't evaluating themselves. They were saying, yeah, you, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. In verse 17, but you do not realize, Jesus wrote, that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They were unaware of their actual condition. Uh, and this lack of insight of, of their situation was reflected by, by the way they measured their Christianity by the balance of their bank account. I'm rich, we have money, and so we don't need anything. To emphasize the poverty of such thinking, it's like Jesus deliberately mocks the very things that produced their wealth. Look at verse 17, he called them beggars despite all their gold, despite all their personal wealth. He called them blind in spite of the ointment that they made to heal eyes. And he calls them naked despite their clothing factories and this beautiful black wool they wore. Nothing nauseates the Lord more than sacrifice without heart, than, than words without meaning. They, they were useless to Christ because they were self-satisfied and they were indifferent to the real issues of faith in him and of true discipleship. To be a Christian means to be useful for Christ. The Laodiceans excelled at meeting the minimum requirements for being acceptably Christian. They went to church a little. They prayed a little. They gave a little. They loved a little. And as a result, it was a farce. Something so revolting that Jesus couldn't stomach it. Jesus' words are severe. And, and his analogy was graphic, and I'm sure he probably angered some of them by what he said. It stung. But thank God that the nature of Jesus is to extend grace to us when we need it most. No one is beyond God's grace. Whatever you have done, you are not beyond the grace of God. 
And that's the message also to the Laodiceans. Jesus gives this counsel and we, we need to get out of the lukewarmness and this is how we get out of it. Look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. This is the antidote to lukewarmness. And then verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. So there are three spiritual investments that Jesus wants us to make, that wanted them to make in particular, and this is an antidote to lukewarmness. The first one is to use my resources, my gifts, my talents, my money, all of my resources for a purpose. Gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. They're to invest in real treasure that lasts forever. They're to invest in what is eternal. It's like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. So what do you do with 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 the end goal of reaching the world for Christ? That's why we are here. We're here to fulfill the great commission. We're here to live out the great commandment. See these five words? Look at the five words on the front of the worship folder. Those five words summarize worship, ministry, evangelism, fellowship, and discipleship. They summarize, those are five words that summarize the great commission and the great commandment. That's why we are here. We live generous lives. We give generously of our finances because of the work that that God's doing in Bay Park and San Diego and around the world through our missionaries. And how do we do it? Verse 19, be earnest or be zealous and repent. In other words, this is the attitude of showing sorrow over our sin and, and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And then the next thing in verse 18 is holiness. It's number two. White clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, you're so proud about the black wool clothes that you wear. Try white. Try my clothes. Try my righteousness. That's what Jesus, God gave us Jesus. He was sinless. He knew no sin, but he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so we live in the righteousness that we have as believers. And how do we do that? Back to verse 19, daily repentance. So be earnest, be zealous, and repent. Why? Because it brings back passion. That brings holiness in our lives. And it's not about pretending. That's not what holiness is, that to pretend to be something that we're not. It's being the best version of us by the grace of God. By being obedient to who God says, well, what God says we should do. And then the third thing is to invest in wisdom and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. And the ointment that Jesus offers is the ability to see spiritual reality. So what informs the way you see the world? Do, do you have a view through lenses given to you by the Holy Spirit? Or have, and, and have you ground those lenses in the pages of God's word? 
Or has the spirit of the age replaced the lenses over your eyes so you don't even realize they're there? How does this happen? Again, be zealous and repent. Have a thirsting for righteousness. Turn away from your sin. So the question is, how do I get all that stuff? How do I get purpose and holiness and wisdom? It's not about striving for it. Look at verse 20. It's on your outline, and I'd like to read it out loud. Let's read it out loud together. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. You know, there's a famous painting that I'm sure many of you have seen of this verse, and it has Jesus on the outside knocking. There's no door handle on the outside. Uh, There's dying fruit at the bottom of the door. Uh, The hinges are rusty. That door hasn't been opened for a long time. I don't think it's wrong to apply it to unbelievers, but this verse is written to the church. It's written to us. And the Lord is primarily concerned here about moving half-hearted Christians and their commitment to full-blown repentance and living passionately for Jesus. Listen, Jesus said, it's a simple imperative. Look, take note. Wake up. I stand at the door and knock. He's taken a position outside the door of our lives and he remains there knocking graciously, patiently. If anyone, wow, you know what what that means in Greek? Anyone. What an invitation. What an amazing promise that is. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and have dinner with him and he with me. This is written to an individual. And so, yes, it's an individual thing as well as a church thing. That we're to be humble and receptive. But you know what? One humble and receptive and repentant sinner is all that's needed for a revival to break out in a church. The master's calling. Are you listening? Are we listening? Do we welcome him into our life every day or do we welcome him back into our lives? How can any follower of the lamb turn down this offer to dine at the table of the king of kings and the Lord of lords? You know, in the Middle East, when, like anywhere, but I think especially in the Middle East, when you're invited into a home to have an opportunity to, to share a meal with the family, it's intimate, it's deep. And of course, this is a foretaste of what we look forward to at the wedding feast of the lamb. And so the bottom line, you have it, on your outline is we welcome Jesus into our lives daily. Is it possible to live the Christian life without Jesus being a part of our daily life? Yes, absolutely. It's unfortunate, but it's true. And so we we invite Jesus and we say daily, Jesus, give me your perspective on this day. Give me your wisdom. Make me your agent to be used by youth as I go throughout this day. And I want to be clear, I don't think a Christian can lose their salvation because it's not secured by what you do. It's secured by what Jesus has done for you on the cross. We're to keep inviting him in, though, to be Lord of every area of our lives. And then look at verse 21. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So on your outline, Jesus will allow us to reign with him if we trust him.
He promises that. And you know what? As Christ followers, we not only get heaven, we get a throne. Look at verse 22 again. Whoever has ears to hear. This is a word for us. It's a word for every church and every individual who's a Christian. Are you listening? So I just want to give a quick summary of where we've been these last seven weeks. As a church, as a believer, we must be careful to not lose our first love, to trust God in the midst of suffering, to not compromise our doctrine, to not waffle on our morality, to be on guard against spiritual deadness, to walk through open doors for sharing the gospel, and to avoid at all costs being lukewarm. Be passionate for Jesus. So you know, God deals with one person at a time. But as we've seen over these last seven weeks, he also deals with one church at a time. And sometimes, like Laodicea, we have everything in our lives, but it's so easy to leave the Lord out. It fills up with so many things. And so it would be easy for us to say, Lord, thanks so much for this. We're good. We're doing fine on our own. We live in America. We have all these freedoms. Laodicea had eye ointment, but we're known here in San Diego for having some of the best food options in the world. We don't have, Laodicea doesn't have anything on us. Sure, Laodicea had banks. We have the beach. Laodicea had technology. We have high-speed internet. Man, you can connect with Netflix or Spotify or whatever social media you're on and to your heart's content. Laodicea could take care of your clothing, but San Diego can take care of your cravings. And you'll get your fill of whatever you want. Zero shame. And man, everything here is affordable. Well, at least it used to be. Acceptable (laughs) and thrilling. So here's some questions I want us to end with, okay? Um, And I want you to think about these. And the question is, is is your ophthalmologist in Laodicea? Or are you accepting the eye ointment that Jesus gives you? So which do you view as a more pressing and more urgent activity, reading and studying your Bible or watching the news? I'm not saying watching the news is unimportant, but on a day-to-day basis, if you only have time to do one, which gets done? If you only had time to do one thing or the other, which would you do? Take time to pray or check your email or Facebook or whatever else you want to check? Which activity is the more pressing activity for you? If you could choose between two things, a lottery ticket that would guarantee you $1 billion or an empty bank account with the assurance that God would provide for you and meet your needs if you trust him, which would you choose? Which would you choose to have your hopes and dreams realized in the American political scene by seeing all of your candidates and all of your issues taken care of and and go, go the right way according to you every time or the opportunity to identify yourself as an alien and a stranger for whom this world is not home? Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we know how deeply you love us. In each of our hearts right now, Lord, let the world fade away and let us hear you knocking. Help all of us right now to say, I am not 
100% good. I need your grace. I need you, Lord. I can't try to do this all by myself. I can't. I welcome you into my heart today. Maybe this is the first time for you to say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Thank you for what you did for me on the cross. We all want to invite you in, Lord, this day, every day, to be our Lord and our Savior. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. So he who has said all these things declared, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.